Good afternoon and welcome to Free to Be Faithful. I'm moderator Kip Allen. Free to Be Faithful is a religious liberty education and awareness program created by the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod in response to increasing governmental incursions into religious life. People of faith and our institutions have come under increasing attack in recent years from secular sources. The country just held midterm elections, with the Democrats gaining control of the House of Representatives, while the Republicans increased their majority in the Senate. What does this mean for people of faith? I discuss a situation with Washington Observer and focus on the family vice president, Tim Gigline. I'm Kip Allen with Free to Be Faithful, and with me today is Mr. Tim Gigline, a longtime friend of this program, a faithful member of the LCMS, and a longtime Washington Observer. Tim, we just went through a really exciting midterm election, and there were some surprises, and there were some things that weren't so surprising. However, this, the landscape has changed. What does this mean for people of faith? Well, it means a lot for people of faith, and uh, there's three things that I might say just to sort of set the table. Uh, The first is that we live in a nation where if you live in rural America, uh, you are probably more inclined to vote Republican. Uh, But if you live uh, in the suburbs, and especially the suburbs right around uh, the large urban areas of America, uh, you are uh, more inclined to vote to Democrat, uh, for, for, for the Democrats. And this rural-suburban uh, shift uh, is deepening. In other words, point one, blue America is getting bluer, and red America is getting redder. Uh, and that has major implications you know, on a, on a host of uh, questions. The second thing to say is that uh, white evangelical Christians whether they vote in presidential elections or whether they vote in midterm elections, uh, overwhelmingly they vote for Republican. And this is uh, very rapidly becoming the absolute base, not only of President uh, Trump's support going into the 2020 uh, presidential election, but it is becoming the very firm basis of the Republican Party uh, even in off-year elections. And the third thing to say uh, is that urban America uh, and the furthest reaches of rural America have never been more distinct in all of American uh, electoral history than now. Uh, the blue and red is deep. Uh, it's uh, wide. And I'm not quite certain what can bring uh, those, uh, those yawning uh, gaps together. And so it seems to me that the implications for people of faith are really enormous, because people of faith are a very significant uh, presence in urban America, and they're very uh, significant uh, presences in rural America. And so bridging that divide, I think, frankly, is one of the most intriguing uh, distinctions in all of 21st century American politics. Tim, something uh, I've observed that... uh leaves me scratching my head a little bit. Uh, One is African-American voters are overwhelmingly Democratic, and yet they are consistently listed as being among the most faithful churchgoers. Secondly, uh, I look at uh, uh, Jewish Americans, and they, again, traditionally side with the Democrats, and yet the Democrats are openly embracing certain anti-Semites. And I'm I'm just at a loss to explain the loyalty that these two groups have to the Democrats. 
Well, uh, I'll, I'll sort of disaggregate uh, those two demographics, if I may. <clears throat> the first thing to say um, is that up to and including uh, the 1930s, black Americans were overwhelmingly Republican voters. Uh, Frederick Douglass, one of the most prominent 19th century African Americans, a former slave, uh, actually was a was a very good friend of Abraham Lincoln's, who was uh, you know the, the first Republican president, and uh, uh, up to and including, as I say, uh, the second election of Franklin Roosevelt, black Americans uh, were a very reliable uh, uh, base of the Republican Party. In fact, it was not uh, too much of an overstatement to say you know it was Lincoln. Uh, who had freed the slaves. And for uh, three generations after that in American politics, uh, black Americans voted uh, Republican. But, of course, something called the Civil Rights Movement uh, intervened, and the Civil Rights Movement uh, shifted, uh, as did uh, the New Deal. Uh, but, the, but the Civil Rights Movement fundamentally uh, shifted uh, black voting patterns, and those voting patterns uh, have remained uh, largely unchanged uh, from the 1960s and early 70s, with some important exceptions. But, uh, up but Jim Crow was a Democrat. But Jim Crow was a Democratic creation. Yes, uh, J- Jim Crow was definitely a creation of what was called the Solid South, which were uh, you know Democrats uh, who who largely ran uh, the state capitals uh, and the state legislatures. Uh, and sent uh, largely Democratic uh, members uh, to Washington in the House and in the Senate. But uh, Dr. Martin Luther King and many of the people in his uh, uh, most important circle, uh, even with the reality uh, of the Solid South, they found an immediate point of connection with President Lyndon Johnson. Uh, and this uh, relationship was absolutely key. Now, this had begun... Uh, in a significant way at the margins with uh, with John Kennedy before he was murdered. But really, uh, with the Civil Rights Acts and the Voting Rights Acts of the uh, early to mid-60s, this uh, uh, increasing percentage, particularly of blacks in the North, uh, voting uh, Democrat, really kicked into high gear. And so by the time uh, you get to uh, 2018, you have black Americans who overwhelmingly, and as I say, uh, now for, uh, for, for three generations, uh, have voted very consistently uh, for the Democratic Party. Uh, I, I have to say uh, that, the, that, that, that the Jewish uh, voting patterns in America I find equally interesting uh, for a host of reasons, the largest of which is that, is that um, uh, Jewish Americans uh, constitute about 2%. Uh, of the American population, uh, but they uh, reliably uh, constitute above 90% uh, voting patterns uh, for the Democratic Party. And I think it has less to do with religious affiliation, because a, a very uh, small percentage of, of American uh, Jewish citizens uh, primarily think of themselves in their Judaism as religious. They see it more as an ancestral, more of, a, of, of an ethnic question. Uh, and uh, many uh, American Jews are uh, liberal and progressive, and so they find a natural home uh, in the Democratic Party. 
I think one thing we need to uh, point out uh, is we've we've gone into this election cycle. The Democrats now hold the House, but the Republicans have increased their majority in the Senate. Now, the House and the Senate have two very different roles to play. They're, they, they, to say they're the upper and the lower house really isn't correct. They're co-equal in many in many respects, and they have very very different responsibilities. How will this re, uh, reflect on the people of faith? Well, I find this division one of the most interesting uh, divisions uh, in this early part of this new century. Uh, you're absolutely right. We have uh, one more uh, Senate special election uh, in Mississippi on the 27th uh, of November. Uh, the sitting Republican senator is likely to vote there. Uh, and so I think it is fair to say that with a net uh, pickup of already two seats and perhaps three uh, seats, that the Republicans uh, remain not only uh, solidly in, um, in control of the Senate, uh, but for uh, m- uh, much of the cornerstone of President Trump's domestic legacy, uh, it's going to continue because uh, only the Senate... Uh, you know, uh, considers uh, judicial uh, nominees, whether they are Supreme Court nominees or appellate nominees or district nominees. And so I expect uh, that uh, robustly until 2020, that never in the history of the American presidency, simply because the Republicans control the Senate, will we have this many judicial nominees nominated and confirmed under one president. He already, of course, has two Supreme Court nominees. We have two members of the Supreme Court who are 80 years of age or older. And I think it's quite probable uh, that President Obama will will potentially have one more Supreme Court pick. You mean President so, Trump? I, I, forgive me. I, I meant President Trump. But I but I do think that the that the Republican uh, losses in the House of Representatives uh, is a very substantial loss. Uh, even according to historic voting patterns, which is to say that historically uh, the the party uh, which is in power in the Oval Office uh, loses significant numbers of seats uh, in its first midterm election. And while the high-water mark uh, for the Trump White House is no doubt the U.S. Senate, which was uh, actually a very, very significant uh, victory, uh, even when you have a two or three you know, net pickup, that is very, very substantial. But uh, it's not just that President uh, Trump's party, the GOP, lost the House. What I think is particularly uh, important is that they lost significantly, and they lost uh, in places where they had uh, historically dominated, going back to where we began our conversation together. You know, moderate Republicans have been able to hold on to significant seats in those suburbs around Chicago, around Denver, uh, around Washington, D.C., uh, most significantly, uh, with maybe 18 exclamation points, uh, is Orange County. Uh, let's, let's, let's think about Orange County for a minute. This is uh, the home of Yorba Linda. This was the birthplace of Richard Nixon. Let's think of uh, Orange County in 1965. This is the place where Ronald Reagan launched his very first uh, 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 fundraiser uh, for political office. There is not one single uh, 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 Republican seat left uh, in Orange County, which for uh, the history of the contemporary iteration of Southern California 
was the absolute uh, stronghold for the GOP in California. Uh, when Congress comes back uh, and forms a new Congress, uh, every single one of those seats in Orange County uh, that were formerly uh, held by the GOP are gone. So this is emblematic uh, of, of the red are getting red, the blue are getting blue, but the real ramifications, and this is what's important, the real ramifications of the ability of the GOP, not merely to win the House and Senate in future years, but also what will this mean for 2020 mm. as the GOP tries to put together the arithmetic that knowing that it probably cannot win uh, the, you know, the, the popular vote, what is the arithmetic to win the Electoral College? That, to me, is the $64,000 question of the Trump campaign. It really is. And, uh, you know, Trump uh, pulled a surprise. He campaigned where the Democrats thought they were safe. And he was able to swing states like, uh, well, like Wisconsin and, um, and uh, I think Minnesota went for him as well areas where traditionally those were Democratic strongholds. And he won the electoral vote. Now, the Electoral College is based, you know, it's a winner-take-all situation for the states. And uh, that's based largely on numbers. You know, whoever wins the most in that particular state wins that state's Electoral College. Now we're seeing that shift a little bit, as you pointed out. I mean, there, we're seeing... Uh, Areas where traditionally the Republicans had had a stronghold in certain areas of the suburbia, for example. And now we're seeing it shift a bit to the uh, to the left. This, I don't think, bodes well for the chances of the GOP or the Trump administration in 2020. Well, I think I think we can say three things definitively. We can first say that in the Republican Party at a federal level, uh, it is very difficult these days to be a so-called moderate because GOP moderates are the men and women who used to populate uh, those uh, suburban seats that are now lost. And so uh, regardless of how the House and Senate will go in two years, and by the way, there is so much attention on the presidential election, people forget uh, that, the, that the GOP has a lot uh, riding uh, on on the Senate, they have a lot at stake, and we can talk about that. So, but but the first thing to say, and not to lose the point, is that the loss of moderate uh, GOP members of the House and Senate uh, is a very uh, big challenge. To your point, the second thing to say, which is I think equally important, is going back to the question you asked a moment ago: What does this actually mean if you are substantially, as a national party, losing? not just minorities, but you're also losing pretty substantially and predictably uh, college-educated uh, women and affluent uh, women, especially if they're single, uh, and you are for the first time in the suburban uh, reality of America, which you know, encapsulates millions of voters, that you're reliably losing uh, uh, college-educated white men. That's also a, a new demarcation for, for the midterm elections. So I think this data set uh, comes together in the question, what is the arithmetic for uh, the Trump-Pence uh, folks to be reelected? But equally important, and I'm not over or understating this, I also think that the arithmetic presently for the Democrats to win the Electoral College in 2020 is, 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 is equally, if not more, difficult than, than the Republicans that had nothing to do with a, with a sitting Republican president. 
I think that that's the challenge there is that Donald Trump's party picked up very key uh, uh, governorships uh, in, in states that matter. They won in Iowa. They won in Ohio. They won in Florida. That's really big. Uh, what's not big, what's not uh, good uh, for the Republicans and very good for the Democrats, is that the Democrats won uh, uh, seven key governorships, including uh, in, uh, in parts of the Midwest. And so the bottom line is the following. I think increasingly the question for, for, for the Democrats is how do they continue to deepen those victories in the Midwest? Because the Midwest and the Ohio River states was the way in which Donald Trump garnered enough votes to win the Electoral College. You know, I'm looking at one state in particular, and that's the state of Wisconsin. We have a lot of Lutherans uh, in Wisconsin. Governor Scott Walker was not able to win a third term. It's very important for whoever the Democratic uh, presidential candidate will be to win Wisconsin, and they're going to have a great help now from, from the new uh, pending governor of that state. I think we're going to also be looking at what's going to happen in the next two years. We've got the economy, whether it's good, whether it's going to be bad, how that's going. Uh, we're going to be looking at, uh, I think, the Democrats, are they going to legislate or are they going to investigate? And also, the I think people are going to see just how far to the left the Democrats have moved in this last election. There are some extreme left-wingers. And some well, people. yes, the, the answer is that they are. But what, may I say... When you go up to 50,000 feet, um, I actually think that the country is, is really electorally, that is to say, is really evenly divided. You know, bottom line, the Senate is now you know, firmly in GOP hands, 52-47. You know, that's great news uh, for the president's party. We have one more race to be determined on the 27th of November, as I said, down in Mississippi. Probably will go Republican. Uh, yes, the Democrats have, have a significant and substantial lead in the House, 232 to 198, five races still undecided. So, you know, I, I look at this data set, and it seems to me, and I, I, I think this is an, a fairly objective look, I, I look at this data set, and I say that both parties equally, and, and this is not just for, you know, on the one hand, on the other, but that both of these parties are facing really uh, significant challenges. And I think I, at the end of the day, have to give the upper hand uh, to the reelect of, uh, of, of President Trump simply because of the advantage of the incumbency and also the strength of what the Republicans may be able to achieve to ignite their own base in the Senate. Well, let's look at some specific issues that people of faith should be concerned about. We've got a number of cases right now moving through the judiciary. And now here we're seeing the landscape has changed again, this time in favor of the, uh, of, uh, of the people of faith. We've got the Baron L. Stutzman now has been re- is being reheard before the Washington State Supreme Court. Uh, we've got uh, another uh, number of other rulings that are coming up that are going through the Supreme Court or through other issues. But we've got other things as well. Uh, funding of Planned Parenthood. This is what President Trump had promised he would stop this. It hasn't been stopped. Uh, we've got problems regarding uh, uh, freedom of expression. Can I say, for example, uh, there are only two genders and keep my well, yeah. job? You know, things like yeah. that. Yes. No, no. I, I, I perfectly concede. I think, 
I think those are big, uh, ma- you know, massive issues. I have to say, uh, yes, the, the defunding of Planned Parenthood is not going to happen uh, at any remove in any time of the next two years from a federal level. Uh, you know, the, the House is now controlled by the Democrats. The abortion lobby is one of their great advocates. And I cannot imagine in a thousand light years that, 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 uh, that we will defund Planned Parenthood. But I'll tell you, I, I think there are three very, very major uh, trends that I am following very closely. Uh, one is November 30th. That's one to put down in your calendar. Okay. Because that's the day that the Supreme Court will consider whether to hear a funeral director case, which is a is a is is the first would be the first major transgender discrimination case. This is a absolutely fascinating case that comes from the uh, Sixth uh, Circuit Court of Appeals in Cincinnati. When someone who is born one gender chooses to uh, to say that they are you know uh, a, a, a another uh, gender, whether uh, they can lose their job while working in a funeral home, this is going to be a absolutely uh, stunningly major case in the cultural battles that we have seen if the justices uh, decide to pick this case up on November 30th. That's the first one. The second one is the most important religious liberty case at the Supreme Court that we know that we have this term. And this is the uh, case of the Bladensburg Cross case. Uh, Bladensburg is a, uh, is a, a cemetery near Washington, D.C., uh, where members uh, of uh, patriots of World War I are buried. Uh, the problem, according to those suing the, uh, the state of Maryland, is that uh, the highest point of this uh, cemetery uh, is, a, is a large cross, and uh, its detractors say uh, that you simply cannot have a cross uh, you know, in a uh, publicly owned cemetery. Well, the ramifications for Arlington Cemetery and you know, many other, most other American uh, veteran cemeteries is enormous. So I uh, am watching uh, this case uh, being argued by First Liberty Institute of Dallas. I'm watching that case very, very closely. And the third thing to say is that things are bubbling up in a major way in Ohio. Uh, In fact, the Ohio House has uh, passed a bill that prohibits abortions of fetuses with heartbeats. And I think, and we talked about this the last time I was honored to be on your program, we are currently seeing all kinds of fetal heartbeat bills all across the country and limiting abortion for fetal heartbeat after a certain number of weeks. We're seeing cases uh, in uh, North Dakota. We're seeing cases uh, in, uh, in, in Ohio, several other states. And I think it is probable that within two terms, because there will be a divisions on this in the United States and the different circuits, I think it's quite possible, probable, I would say, that the Supreme Court will pick up a heartbeat bill and hear a major case within two terms. So there's a transgender case, major ramifications. There's a, uh, a veterans cross case, major ramifications. And the next thing you know, uh, you have the, uh, the, the prospect of gutting potentially part of Roe versus Wade on the radar scope as well. These cases, my friend, are as big as they get. 
are also looking at the uh, uh, the case, for example, of uh, Sweet Cakes by Melissa. That has now been, uh, they've asked the Supreme Court for certiorari on that one. It hasn't uh, ruled yet, but that'll be an enormous one. Uh, looks like Jack Phillips may be headed back in that direction as well. Yes, they, 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 the state of Colorado will not leave Jack Phillips uh, alone, and uh, he is a person of such character, and uh, it's outrageous that after having won at the Supreme Court that he would be facing you know, yet more attacks. Uh, in his state of Colorado. And, of of course, we're watching uh, that case very closely. I think it is quite possible that with one thing leading to the other, that uh, that we could see uh, Jack Phillips, you know, uh, in a in a in a in a major uh, senior uh, courtroom again. I I don't think that uh, that that case would be ripe for the Supreme Court anytime soon. But it's not to say uh, that, uh, you know, that the that the legal trajectory would not uh, begin uh, for him, and he has outstanding legal representation. And of course, the last case at the court uh, was uh, one of the most powerful of the last ten years. And again, with the sweet cakes case, if that one goes to the Supreme Court, as uh, as I mentioned, they've already filed a petition for cert. Then a ruling on that would affect the entire industry. No doubt. No doubt. And I, as, as we talked about during the, uh, during the Jack Phillips case, you know, I, I was in a camp that believed that there were better cases in the country mm-hmm. uh, that, that turned on free expression. That's uh, what I heard and, as well. Yeah. And so, I, and I, and so uh, we'll, we'll have to see. I mean, my, my prayer is that if and as these cases come to the Supreme Court, my prayer is that whatever case fits most beautifully into a pure free expression case, I, I think we're, we're, we're much better off, you know, in that regard. I must say one other thing, if I may, very quickly. Yeah, please go ahead. You know, yes, we watch the Senate. Yes, we watch the House and what can or cannot pass. You mentioned the defunding of Planned Parenthood. But I, I think it's very important to say that this president can do a lot of things by executive order. And we saw two very profound pro-life executive orders through HHS, the Department of of Health and Human Services just in the last 10 days. This is overwhelmingly, with no exception, the most pro-life administration in the history of the country. You're quite correct. He's, he ironically has borrowed a, 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 a phrase and a tactic from the prior administration about the, the pen and the telephone. Yeah, exactly right. And it, that's correct. And in the first of these executive orders that I'm mentioning, the Trump administration finalized new regulations that essentially protect both religious and moral objectors from the Obama-era HHS uh, abortion drug mandate. That is a huge and significant win. It goes directly to the little sisters of the poor. And the second one of the Trump administration proposed a new rule that directs insurers selling Obamacare plans that essentially cover elective abortion, and it says, uh, you know, it, it has to do with which they collect a separate payment from enrollment for that coverage. Now, that seems a little Byzantine, but it really isn't. It's about what the law requires, and this is much better for those of us who are pro-life. Well, Tim, we've just about run out of time. I want to thank you again for shedding uh, some light on these issues and, and lending us your, your expertise. You certainly follow this a lot more heavily than I have, and you've got a, your pulse, your fingers on the pulse. 
Well, it's my pleasure and honor as always. Be of good cheer and thank you so much. And God bless. You've been listening to Free to Be Faithful, a presentation of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod as a religious liberty education and awareness program. Free to Be Faithful airs the third Monday of every month. Today's guest was Tim Gigline of Focus on the Family. I'm your moderator, Kip Allen, wishing you God's blessing. You've been listening to Free to Be Faithful, produced by Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Thank you for listening and supporting Free to Be Faithful on Worldwide KFUO.